0: I like to ask my students, if you had a ring, a magical ring, that had the power to make you invisible, how would you use it? What would you use it for? It's a good way to start a conversation about ethics. What would we do if no one could see us? The answers can be surprising. Many students would use it to sneak into concerts or to get ahead in a line. Bolder ones would try to get into a plane and see the world without paying. Honestly, I'm not sure they thought it through, given the size of a regular plane seat. Are they hoping to stand in a corner during the entire flight? Many of the students I ask will use it to play pranks on their friends and family, like move stuff around and pretend that they are ghosts. A friend of mine said he'd spy on people to see what they do when they think they are not being seen, which is an ironic way of using it and also kind of creepy. Meanwhile, An unfortunate number of students confessed that they used it to shoplift, which is not just unethical, but also I feel a little underwhelming. Is that what you'd use such a powerful artifact for? At least one student said right away he'd rob a bank, which is surprisingly honest for a potential bank robber. One said he'd use it to find out what's really going on in Area 51, but he did not volunteer to share the knowledge. All in all, it does make you a little disappointed about humanity, only a few have ever said they'd use their powers for good, like fighting crime, which is for the record what I would totally use it for. Or in one inventive and very specific case, to steal all the Egyptian artifacts from the British Museum and return them to the Egyptians. I'm not sure she knew how much Egyptian stuff you can find in the British Museum. So what's going on here? Do we only do good deeds because we are afraid of what people will say? Or worst just to avoid going to jail, or are there more important reasons, self-motivating reasons to do good, to be honest, to be just? Welcome back to Philosophy Philosophy Universe, Universe, a podcast about science fiction, philosophy and fantasy, and everything in between. I am Alfredo, and this is episode 6, Plato and the First Ring of Power. This is, by the way, the beginning of a mini-series called The Ethics Tutorial. It would be, of course, impossible to try and cover every possible philosophical topic in this podcast, and also impossible to cover every single fantasy or sci-fi story with philosophical importance. So what I propose to do is to tackle different topics in sequences of 5 to 10 episodes each. So we'll talk about ethics, philosophy of knowledge, political philosophy, and so on. And hopefully this will help to give you, my friends and listeners, a bit of an overview of some important areas of philosophy. And maybe some less important areas, but that I do like to talk about. My hope is that this will keep us focused and develop a bit of a learning curve. And so, the ring. Yes, the scenario is not very original. I think mostly everyone who's interested in fantasy will immediately recognize this power of invisibility as something that Sauron's ring could do. Tolkien knew enough to give it a certain moral ambivalence. The more than Bilbo and Frodo use its power, the quicker the evil effects of the ring take place. There's a moral danger in using this ring. But those of you with some previous interest in philosophy will hopefully recognize here a much older story. It was told by Plato, again, in The Republic, which is the same dialogue in which he gave us the Allegory of the Cave from episode 2. There's so much stuff in this dialogue. It's all in Plato. It's It's all in in Plato. Plato. So, here's the story, as Plato tells it, in Book 2 of the Republic. There's this shepherd called Gyges. It's spelled G-Y-G-E-S in English. And this is directly from the Republic. According to the tradition, Gyges was a shepherd in the service of the king of Lydia. There was a great storm, and an earthquake made an opening in the earth at the place where he was feeding his flock. Amazed at the sight, he descended into the opening where, among other marvels, he beheld a hollow brazen horse, having doors at which he, stooping and looking in, saw a dead body of stature as appeared to him more than human. I like to imagine this as the scene in Alien when they are investigating this derelict spaceship and they find this huge, you know, skeleton. And having nothing on but a gold ring, this he took from the finger of the dead and reascended. Now, the shepherds met together according to custom that they might send their monthly report about the flocks to the king. Into their assembly he came, having the ring on his finger, and as he was sitting among them, he chanced to turn the collet of the ring inside his hand, when instantly he became invisible to the rest of the company, and they began to speak of him as if he were no longer present. He was astonished at this, and again, touching the ring, he turned the collet outwards, and reappeared. He made several trials of the ring and always with the same result. When he turned the collet inwards, he became invisible. When outwards, he reappeared. The rest of the story is told kind of quickly and matter-of-factly. Whereupon, he contrived to be chosen one of the messengers who were sent to the court, where as soon as he arrived, he seduced the queen and with her help conspired against the king and slew him and took the kingdom. This is the story, but the context is important. In the dialogue, Socrates is talking with some of his friends about what may be the basic question about ethics. Why is it better to be good than evil, just, rather than unjust? In the first book, Socrates just made a very good case for showing that there are good reasons to be just, and there are good enough arguments to defeat his first opponent, an angry guy named Thrasymachus, who makes some good points but not good enough and ends up a bit embarrassed about being proved wrong. But before Socrates can get a break, two brothers, Glaucon and Ademantus, tell Socrates that they are not satisfied, that Thrasymachus let him off too easily. Socrates says, fine then, I have nothing better to do than to talk about justice for nine books more. So his friend Glaucon tells the story of Gyges and how once he finds he can get away with whatever, he goes straight for seduction and murder and becomes a tyrant. And Glaucon presses the issue, this is also directly from the Republic. Suppose now that there were two such magic rings, and the just man put on one of them, and the unjust the other. No man can be imagined to be of such an iron nature that he would stand fast in justice. No man would keep his hands off what was not his own, when he could safely take what he liked out of the market, or go into houses and lie with anyone at his pleasure or kill or release from prison whom he would, and in all respects, be like a god among men. Then the actions of the just man would be as the actions of the unjust. They would both come at last to the same point. And this we may truly affirm to be a great proof that a man is just, not willingly or because he thinks that justice is any good to him individually, but of necessity, for wherever anyone thinks that he can safely be unjust, there he is unjust. For all men believe in their hearts that injustice is far more profitable to the individual than justice. This is what philosophers call a mental experiment. Mental experiments basically present you with a scenario, usually a bit fantastic or far-fetched, as a way of making you think or rethink common pre-assumptions. One thing I don't quite like about mental experiments is that often they bring in the author's own assumptions about what the listeners will do. Here, Glaucon, who is, to be fair, acting as David's advocate, he he does not really believe this. But he wants to make the strongest possible case. So Glaucon seems to bring in, together with this interesting scenario, his own conclusion. No one will be able to resist this power and use it for great justice. For For great great justice. justice. But what do you think? How would you use it? What Glaucon gets right is that this scenario does make you think about regular things in new depth. Some people are more cynical, maybe. They will agree with Thrasymachus and with Glaucon that people act only honestly, decently, justly, or in a selfless manner because they are afraid of the backlash if they didn't. What are people going to think? What if I get caught? But that at heart, the smartest and happiest people are those who found out how to do all sorts of dishonest things without getting caught. In short, what this view is proposing is that being a moral person means sacrificing our potential happiness, and being immoral means having the brains and the courage to go straight for it. Some philosophers take this even further. For some of them, God is basically a fiction put up there just to make sure that we all behave when we are not being watched. If this is the case, getting rid of the idea of God would mean we don't have to behave well anymore. For others, God does exist, but they find God to be an aggravating presence that is always watching and making sure we don't get what we want without some degree of guilt. But is that the case? Is morality essentially opposed to our happiness? Could we be better off without it? Historically, philosophy has been for the most part on the side of Socrates here. Most philosophers that left some mark in history have argued in different ways that being moral is actually the path to a greater and deeper happiness than being immoral. That ethics and moral standards have, in other ways, an intrinsic value, that is, reasons why they are worth living by in and of themselves, and not just some kind of societal constraint or arbitrary impositions by people who are envious and want no one to be happy. There have been many ways of approaching this subject, though. There have been also philosophers defending the opposite view, that it is ultimately dumb and counterproductive to the individual to let themselves be ruled by moral standards. Or at least that there are no such moral standards So just do whatever you want, whether it makes you happy or not. So we need to look at this in turn. And as we'll find out, there are many interesting accounts of how morality happens and why it is important. Um, There are at least three, maybe four central theories, and then a few that are also interesting to contemplate. We'll get there. But before we get there, we are going to dig a bit deeper into the story of the ring. To be honest, the story at the end moves a little fast for me. I'm still not sure how being invisible could help Geiger seduce the queen, really, and how simply getting the king dead was enough to take the kingdom and not get ham for treason. It seems all a bit hurried in the end and maybe taking too much for granted about how to conquer a kingdom. But there is a recent novel that explores this story in a bit more detail, and it does it interestingly in the context of a contemporary businessman who finds this ring. The story digs deeper into the psychology of a man who doesn't start being evil, but slowly falls prey to the temptation of the power that the ring represents. It was actually written by one of my colleagues, Professor Randy Richards, and he will join us next time for our very first interview, a discussion on the novel The Unseen Hand of Peter Gagis. I hope you will join us too for this special episode of Philosophy Philosophy Universe. Universe. And since this is a short episode, I would like to thank here many of the people who have helped me get started with this podcast, particularly in St. Ambrose, the people at KALA, the radio of St. Ambrose, and Professor David Baker, who taught me all the basics about how to get started with the podcast, and also the people of the library at St. Ambrose, and uh, I don't remember what else. Anyways, I hope you will join us too for the special episode of Philosophy Universe.